listening to the Fail Better Podcast. Today I'm talking to Ethan Lance. He's an old buddy of mine from our days building and launching mp3.com, tv.com, and even Dr. Dre's Beats Music, but he's done so much more. He's co-founded or, or sometimes even founded some of the most fantastic communities out there, including Comic Vine, Giant Bomb, Tested.com, and Anime Vice. If you, if you don't know these, you're not part of the communities. But these are sites that he sold to CBS Interactive and Whale Rock Entertainment. They're great. But let's pause for a second. You know, as I know that behind every great community, there's always a bomb. Ethan, hi, thank you for joining me on the Fail Better podcast. Thanks, Andy. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, too. So you've been running product for Dwell.com, the, the website and mobile app about architecture and design of modern homes, for pretty much the last year. Tell me about that. Yeah, it's been about a year and a half now. Before we got there, the Dwell.com was sort of like a blog platform, which was great. It had all the content from the magazine. So what we were doing was we we're going to build an iOS app, which we built, and a brand new website. And what we wanted to do is build all the community features inside with all the UGC so people could upload their own photos and get advice and inspiration from other architecture lovers. Nice. And, and how did the launch go? It went great. We learned a lot. We learned, one, it's hard to launch an iOS and a web platform at the same time and to make them independently interesting on their own um, and not just try to make them feature for feature parody, which is what we kind of did. And so around January, we took a step back from iOS and we're probably going to revisit it next year. And we decided to really spend our time on, on the web and really figure out what our business angle is. Why, why is it difficult to focus on two platforms at the same time? Just the team wasn't big enough or it really takes looking at each product separately as a unique standalone product? I think that's what it is, what you just said. I mean, you could do it with a small team as long as you have a unique vision for each device. And if you remember, we did that at Beats too, and the, we launched a website along with it, and then we basically buried it. <laughs> yeah, we didn't promote that at all. Almost no traffic went there. But it was fully functional. Yeah, you know, we tried to go for full feature uh, parody, but even with all the developers and product managers that we had, that was a struggle. There was just so much to build and so much to focus on for Android yeah. and iOS. I thought it would have been cool to take the Beats music website and then make that into more of a community site, maybe even um, discussion boards around music, and then leave the app for pure playing of music. That's a really interesting idea. And it seems like so many companies just go out of their way to strive for identical mobile and web products. Yeah, it doesn't really need to be that way, right? It probably doesn't even work out great that way. You sort of need them for, for different times and different purposes. Yeah. It's like you know, your watch, you you don't want parody of features on your watch you want something unique right but yeah, totally. so now that you guys are entirely or mostly focused on the website what are you doing with it we build a message board which you know it sounds boring but it's going to evolve into the way people talk about architecture and the way people talk to their architects or their general contractors the message boards are just a starting point for basically a messaging platform around architecture and design more of a, a way for me to communicate with my architect or my designer on a project that I'm working on them with and sending them photos back and forth and collecting photos. Why, why would you use this, the Dwell app, rather than just email or SMS? You know, that's an interesting question. It kind of actually frustrates me now because I am going through a, a small remodel. And my wife and I are looking at photos on dwell.com. We're going through all the photos. And then we take it and we slack each other. 
or we instant message each other. And I thought, I mean, we kind of have some of the capability in dwell.com already to, I can at mention my wife on a photo and say, hey, Alex, take a look at this. And still then reply like, oh, yeah, that is a great kitchen cabinet. We should add that to our collection. But it's not private. It's all public so everyone can read our messages, uh-huh. which is why we want to go the next step into private messaging, like hidden messages on Dwell. So she and I can just save that, all of that information, all that conversation right there. I love that you and your wife slack each other. That's, that's yeah. fantastic. <laughs> Don't you? No. Okay. No, no. So uh, Dwell.com is moving ahead. You're building up a great community of fans of modern architecture. Um, But this is is the Fail Better podcast. But let's talk about when you left CNET. So you were working on GameSpot and TV.com and MP3.com. But you left all this to start a community for car fanatics or car fans. You were, you were the CEO or the head of product? We didn't have any titles. So the lead product person would have been Dave, crazy smart product guy, great designer, learned how to program. He and I quit Fina, and I was the head of engineering just by proxy of being the only engineer. He was the head of design and product by being the only designer and product person. We both quit together and then rented a little office out of Berkeley and then started building sites. I remember Dave saying to me, what do you want to build, Ethan? We're, you know, we're quitting. Let's go build something really cool. And, you know, for me, I'm really into cars. I'm sitting here in my workshop right now. I'm looking at a car that's taken apart from 1967. I really want to build car sites. And I thought, you know what? We could build this really cool car community. And so we set on this idea that we could build and launch a car site in 30 days. So we did it. Oh. We uh, designed it in like a week, built it and launched it in 30 days. That's how you build a new product. Yeah. We built this car site and we expected everyone to show up and upload their cars and talk about their cars. We thought that Camaro guys and Mustang guys would just use the site to talk to Camaro guys and Mustang guys. You know, car guys like you're, I'm a Mustang guy, I'm a Camaro guy, or I'm a Porsche guy. No, I'm a Ferrari guy. The way I grew up, I was just, I love cars. So it doesn't really matter what make or model it is. I'm into it. So, So you built it, you had this make and model agnostic vision, you launched it. And what happened? In one way, it was successful because we launched it very, very fast. We hired a PR team, and we actually got in the Chicago Tribune in this big page. It was Dave and my photo, um, and then right under that was the, the founders of YouTube, whoa. and right under that was Mark Zuckerberg. And um, wow. we were like, whoa, these guys are like seriously building huge social networks, and we're the small underdogs building this little car network. And then within a month of that PR, we, we had someone from another company, another massive car company, come and ask us if we would sell the whole thing and come work for their company. We almost sold Boompa, the first thing we ever built, to this company, which sounds like a success, but the site itself was a failure because it never did take off. Even when we, we eventually said no to that company, we let it roll for another year. And it really didn't do anything. In the the 21st century, history of startups is already a long list of huge grand failures. And, and you've surprisingly had almost nothing but hits. So so what are the reasons Boompa didn't take off? Um, one was we named it wrong. My grandfather's nickname growing up was Boompa, and he loved cars. He's the guy that got us all into it, the whole family, rebuilding cars, racing them. So we named the website Boompa.com because I thought it would be cool to as an homage to him to call this website Boompa. But that only meant something to me and not anything to anyone else. So they all thought it was a dumb name. So that was the first thing. 
And the second thing was that we didn't have a voice for this car site. It was just, come on, upload your cars, everything will be great. And you can talk in the message boards and all this. And what we realized is that you either need to make a site about a specific make and model, like a Nissan message board or a BMW message board and community, or you need to solve the problem of different personalities and different cultures coming together by having a voice on the site. Certain subject matters won't work with a giant community without any sort of directions. It was too broad. It didn't have their people. Their, their, their tribe wasn't there. There's other car sites that have since come by that I love that um, have solved the problem, like Bring a Trailer. Bring a Trailer is a blog, but it's all about vintage cars. So they stuck to one thing, and then they add their own editorial flavor. And we didn't do that for our car site. It, people stopped coming. There wasn't any retention. Yeah. So, so did you shut down Boompa? Yeah, we shut that. We shut it down. We actually eventually gave the domain to a record label up in Canada that was going by Boompa.Canada. So if you go to Boompa.com now, I believe it's a Canadian record label. Oh, well, that, that's nice. So it's still, it still and, exists, um, just not at all the same yeah. and not part of your life. <laughs> yeah, not at all the same, not part of my life. So you guys, you guys shut down Boompa. You fail with Boompa. But I've seen so many other uh, startup founders fail at their first startup and then run back to their corporate job. You and Dave didn't run back to CNET and ask for your old jobs back. You guys kept going. Yep trying again. What we would do is we would go to like bookstores and look at magazines and you kind of pick a magazine that probably doesn't have a website or doesn't have a, a lot of websites with community around them. But there are people are reading these magazines and magazines are basically just editorial for communities, right? Once we decided to build a second site, we kind of went, you know, again, what does he and I have passion for, but also has a need for a community. And we looked around and we didn't see any comic book sites that were doing it for us. And we both grew up reading comics. I was in my 30s. I think he was just under 30. Um, we weren't still reading comics at that age, but we knew we loved them, you know, as a kid. And we knew there was plenty of people who really needed this outlet. And that outlet was? Comic Vine, which took off. I mean, it definitely took off. You sold it to CBS and it's still still going strong. But how did you get the audience and the community to show up in the first place? It's word of mouth. And what we would do a lot would be um, we use the site ourselves and we did a lot of, well, for Comic Vine, for example, Dave and I did some silly stuff in the beginning um, before we even had the bigger engineering team where we went to the Target kids section and bought super goofy, bright spandex clothes and we dressed up as these the lamest superheroes we could come up with. His character was called Captain Cascader because he was doing cascading style sheets as a coder. And my character was Red Lamp because I was Linux Apache, you know, Lamp basically, um, DHP. Had and we, my neighbor, he was a photographer, he took these crazy photos of us in these mock battle scenes. Um, later on, we actually did a video running around in our, basically our underwear, in these spandex underwear, um, making mock battle scenes and um, just being goofy. And did that work? I don't know how well that worked. That's kind of how we started, just being really silly and showing people that, you know, we were just here to have fun. And then people started passing those videos around. But it really wasn't about growing super fast back then. It was really about building something super interesting, which is so different because right now at Dwell, like we spend a lot of time talking about growth and acquisition and retention. You know, we did that at Beats as well. Our purpose was a little different. It was really just to build these little communities and let them grow slowly. But how did you grow slowly? I mean, it must have been more than viral videos and word of mouth. A lot of things that we worked on would have been SEO, which I hate saying SEO. It sounds so boring. But the idea was to make it very easy for people to search, you know, for some subject matter within the comic book world and find us. 
And so our websites, except for Tested, were wiki-based. We had our users filling out pages, you know, on every character, every video game, every comic book, and they were writing these long wiki pages and uploading tons of photos. Once you get that core user base interested and they feel like you've built this honest community for them, they basically spread the word to all their friends. That was our goal for growing. To really be honest and build a really good place to be um, and have people bring their friends. And I think that's what happened. So back then, I mean, we were really slow growing, but we had high editorial values. You know, the sites were different than some of the bigger sites that would cover um, pretty much any subject matter in video games or any subject matter in comics, where we were a little bit more, I would say, curated. Yeah, and that editorial voice was what helped you guys stand out with the communities. Yeah, it's like a home for them. They can come there and they can have someone else curate and talk about what they're interested in, which has really worked on giantbomb.com and really worked on comicline.com because what we did was we set up these editorial teams that talked to the users, basically presented the users of how we think about video games or how we think about comic books or how we think about technology and then empowered the users to almost to do their own sort of mini version of what the ed- the professional editors were doing. So editors could write reviews, so could users. Editors could make videos, and we were allowing users to make their own videos and upload them as well into onto the site or into YouTube. So we were like inspiring these younger guys coming up to do what we were doing professionally. But everything that we built and what we're still building today is, you know, these community sites around a niche. And I think that was really a big part of why those sites work. Do you feel that now that we're in 2017, almost every niche audience has been catered to, or are there communities that are still not, not satisfied? I think about that all the time. I think there's a ton of niche communities still, um, and new ones that'll come up that we don't even know about through technologies that are being created now where there's going to be communities around artificial intelligence or autonomous cars or all the new stuff that could come out with augmented reality where we're going to be doing media in a different way. But I do spend a lot of time as I'm falling asleep and I think like, what can I build next? What's a community that needs to be built? And it's, it's crazy, you know, like how much time we think about those things, at least I do, because I'm always wanting to build something. And if you think about Beats, it was going to eventually go that way with all the editorial that we created on Beats. All the playlists on, at Beats were created by an editorial team of about, I guess, what, 10 probably or five internal editors and then tons of freelance editors that we would farm out playlist ideas and then they would create these amazing playlists. That was the editorial voice for Beats. It was all about curation. And did you try and introduce curation to, to Boompa? No, we never did because by the time we moved on to building other websites, it was kind of too late for that site. So if we were going to do it, we would probably have to start over completely. We were just so busy at that point with the sites that we're working, which turned out to be entertainment-based, you know, the comic site, the video game site. We just let it go. But I always thought maybe I would go and return to it someday. You should. Boompa would like that. Um but since this is fail better, although the site did not by any means fail, elements of it did. Anime Vice. That one was a complete nightmare as far as I'm concerned, because if you've ever launched an anime site before and you don't have serious moderation, what you'll find is within uh, a year, your whole database will be full of hentai, which was <laughs> terrifying when I found out how much hentai was uploaded. Can you explain what hentai is for anyone oh, who doesn't know? I don't want to. Um, hentai is basically adult content in anime cartoon form 
when we launched our other community sites, we wanted to be sort of like a Wikipedia, like almost the way a museum would work. Yes, you can go to the Louvre and see naked penises and whatnot, you know. So we thought we would be highbrow like that, you know, like not skirt away from it. But what we didn't realize is how, how much hentai is. So it's like tentacle porn and all this stuff. And then we start realizing, wait a second, most of my audience are kids. And this 1% of these users were uploading all this really dirty stuff, but it was sort of hidden under a layer of curation where we curated on top all the good, you know, anime that would be for, you know, kids and young adults. And then deep as you, as you know, get down into the website, as you start searching around, you'll start seeing all this hentai. God. So what, what did you guys do? So one summer we just had to build a whole almost like our own mechanical Turk system and then um, get basically 10 or 20 interns to help just crank through and identify every photo and delete anything that was hentai. It was a big pain in the ass. It was terrible. That is just awful. Can you imagine having to look at those photos for like a three week period, just trying to get rid of them all after a while. It's just soul crushing just seeing all that. And doing it at work, too. So it's flashing up on your screen, just going through all these photos like, oh, that's fine, that's fine. Oh, no, 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 no. Get rid of that. Get rid of that. That's another huge product sale right there, not putting enough uh, you know, moderation in front of our image uploading. What was the audience response? Almost everyone was helpful, actually. They helped us take it out. There was a few people that you probably didn't really want to have on your website anyways who didn't want us to do that. But in the end, you know, we had to. It wasn't the type of content we could even legally have up there, probably, with the um, age of the audience that we had. So we made sure that we got it out of there. Yeah, and that was something that we were always concerned about when we were building out Stormglass. You know, how, how to have user-generated content or any sort of interactions in an online space targeting kids. It's something that we never quite succeeded at. But what advice do you wish you could go back and give yourself for all these sites? But, but especially for when you were creating Boompa, the first one. Oh, man. Um, I think some of the advice I would think about is to even go slower and not try to build things so fast. Saying that at the same time right now, we do daily code pushes and we are writing so much code. It's incredible. Yeah. And everyone's focus now is definitely on deploying that lean MVP, leaner and faster than ever before. But I feel like we did that on every project at at GameSpot and TV.com and MP3.com fail faster or fail forward you know like i still believe in that because what happens is you can put so much time into thinking and trying to analyze every little detail or doing an immense amount of qa for a product that doesn't even have any implications where you know you can lose somebody money or anything like that you don't necessarily need to do qa on every type of product sometimes you just launch it you let your users qa it for you Um, you create a dialogue with your users saying hey like we're a small team Thank you for QAing. Anything you submit to us through this email, we'll, we'll get fixed. Do you ever regret doing that? At GameSpot, I remember once we launched a new, not, vet, not properly vetted or tested navigational system and saw our traffic drop, I think, like 20%. Yeah, but the nice thing is you can... Overnight. <laughs> the nice thing is you can roll it back. I mean, now it's much easier to just A-B test that. So you could just launch that to a much smaller um, user base. Which even, honestly, right now, we don't even A-B test at Dwell. And we never even A-B tested at Beats. How many (laughs) engineers do we have? Like 70? Yeah, that's probably right. And our product team was probably 10 guys, men and women, by the time we we launched. Mm -hmm. We had um, access to all those things, but we didn't even do it. We had too much to do. It would be interesting to work with a team that does do a lot of A-B testing and a lot of data crunching from a startup perspective, because I'd be interested to see how 
teams launch new products and, and follow those rigorous methodologies with Beats. I mean, everyone's just cranking, trying to get this thing launched. I feel like everything that I've ever built has always been that way. I've never been on the side where you're at a larger company, maybe that's launching slower or um, has a massive timeline. The companies I work at and for are always just cranking, like pushing out new features, new ideas, talking to the users constantly and tweaking. But now it's so easy to do A-B testing, yeah. you know, with Optimizely or there, there are just so many low-cost options for implementing you know, it. It is, but it's not as low-cost as it sounds. Optimizely, in all of them, they still cost a lot of money, especially for a small company. Or think about like an Amplitude, like taking all of your events and firing them off to Amplitude and having this event system um, where you can go through and look at all the data, which, which is great. Even that costs a bunch of money. So for small companies, I don't know that there's really – Google Analytics is free. Um, I think almost everyone still uses that. And then at the same time, how do you have time to even go back with small teams and do A-B testing? So that's something that we struggle with right now with Dwell trying to really just crank everything out, everything that we think that we need to have in place for feature complete, even though you're never feature complete. Saying all that, it will be nice to see if at the end of this year, where we are now at dwell.com, if we will have that time to step back and go through everything we built and improve them through testing and growth. But like I said, that's not the world I'm in right now. I mean, I think what I would tell my younger self is just to keep going and um, always be creating. It's just so fun to, and it's so easy for anyone to just get into tech and just build something, something interesting. I mean, you know that. What, what, what's a book that you'd recommend to someone who wants to get into tech and start creating? I would recommend Dune right now. <laughs> the whole series. <laughs> and no, seriously, if you want to get into tech and start creating, I would look to science fiction for inspiration. A lot of the stuff we're building nowadays that you're hearing about that is being built is just straight up science fiction. Everything got a magic leap and virtual and augmented reality. Flying cars are coming. I mean, who thought? There's multiple flying car companies right now. Autonomous cars, all of it. Straight up science fiction. What's a specific example of something from Dune that, that you've seen or that has inspired you to create something or that someone else is creating? Well, you know what's funny about Dune? Have you read the book? I have not, no. Okay, the funny thing about Dune is it's set in a future where they can't even really remember Earth anymore at this point but they have all of the lore of Earth. And uh, it's set 5,000 or something like that years after a giant jihad where humans killed all artificial intelligence and all robots and made it illegal to make them. I don't really know how that applies to anything, but I thought that was really interesting. It's almost like the exact opposite of what we're all doing right now. We're building this world now that's about to be destroyed in 4,000 years when we have to kill all the robots. Okay. That sounds like an incredibly helpful book or, or series. Thank you, Ethan. I'll slap up some links to Dune at Fail Better Podcast. Com. Click on those links, listener, to help support this podcast and, and also to help avoid the uh, robot apocalypse. Now, Ethan, I have one last question for you. Who would you want to hear talk about their worst product failure? Oh, man. And what they learned from it. I would want to... Is it too easy to say Elon Musk? Like, I would totally go listen to that guy all day long. Like, he's so... He just coming up with crazy ideas all the time. What, what, what is his biggest uh, fail, do you think? Jeez, I don't even know what it is. What, what, has he failed? I don't even know if he's failed. I mean, if maybe a little bit during his PayPal days where he was building, what was the name of the company that he merged with uh, the PayPal guys? Um, X.com. Um, maybe that was his failures. He made a lot of money out of PayPal. 
great. And he could have just gone away after that, but he did put all that money pretty much on the line um, to build new products. Mm -hmm. And I love the fact that this guy has this idea that, you know, everything he's going to do is to get us to Mars because we can't be a, a one planet species. And maybe that's why I like Dune so much too. Like that, that whole concept of like, let's do something big and really move it forward. I think, Another person that would be interesting would be um, the founder of Magic Leap. Kind of like seeing, like, what are the sales that they're having right now? I think everyone w would want to know, is that going to be vaporware? Or is something really exciting going to come out of that? Are we going to be walking around like, with, you know, visuals in front of our face nonstop? If you watch Black Mirror, yeah, there's a lot of that kind of concept. Imagine just being able to, like, answer a phone call. Or, like, what Facebook was saying in their last Facebook conference, where you can, like, answer a, a text or a phone just by flicking a finger. You could be talking to someone face-to-face, you get some sort of vibration on your arm. It's basically like a text that's just asking you something where it's a yes or no, and you feel these vibrations, you could answer with the vibration. Things like all these little muscle cues and visual cues that are going to happen in the near future that are going to make us almost kind of like, I don't know, almost like telepathic. And they're not that far away. Well, it, you know... I don't think it is. No, you know, hopefully within our lifetimes, because I want, I want to be part of that movement. You know, I'm excited that we got to live through the birth of the internet. Yeah. I want to see the next, the next step. But yeah, I will, I will reach out to Elon Musk, who I haven't spoken to in 23 years, and Roni Abovitz, and see if either of them will be willing to, to come on the podcast. Ethan Lance, thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, step away from your car repair and talk about the dangers in building communities. Um, and good luck with the next steps on dwell.com. Well, I, I can't wait to see where you guys take thank it. Thank you very much. Yeah. Excited about it. And good luck to you. Cause I know you're always doing creative stuff too. Ah, you're too sweet. Thanks, Ethan. And thank you listener. Remember before you build an online community, Find your niche, find your voice, and make sure you moderate that hentai, that terrible, terrible hentai. Um, on that note, I'm Andy Deemer. Our theme music was composed by the wonderful Yuri Sazanoff. This podcast was edited for length, clarity, and fun. And you can find more episodes, more failed startups, and, and product learnings, and plenty of great books and links to those at failbetterpodcast.com. I tweet at Andy Deemer, LinkedIn at Andy Deemer, Facebook at Fail Better Podcast, and tell your friends about this show because you don't want them to launch something terrible and filled with hentai, do you?